Welcome back to Always See Everything, the movie podcast where we review, riff on, and rank every film in the Criterion Collection. I'm Anthony, and this is a guy who just had his first thought about a movie, Sean. So I was watching Uncut Gems today, and what I noticed is that New York City is basically a character in the movie. Like, the setting is kind of a character. There were a hell of a lot of plot holes, though, and the writer, and it was so crazy that the writers, I think, were basically on crack. I low-key can't wait to see the cinema sins on it because they're kind of better than the movie. And um, I also watched the Super Bowl for the commercials. On today's episode, we're talking about the movie You Forgot About the Titanic, A Night to Remember, The Killer, which is Heat but with John Woo and Doves, and two movies about selfish icons that destroy the world around them, even if they are on opposing sides of a sort of race war, The Great Dictator and Uncut Gems. <laughs> Sean, how did you feel about this week's movies? I would say pleasantly surprised. Mm. Pleasantly surprised for two of them and completely 1000% validated in my preconceived notions for the other two, which is a good ratio. I, I had a good time with this week's movies. Um, I think that this was Uncut Gems notwithstanding, uh, a little bit of a weak week for me, but well, it'll lead to more interesting discussion. I, I had that notion coming into it, but there was some riz. There was some some hidden weapons stashed below the surface of some old boring movies that weren't that bad. But speaking of... Speaking of... Our first movie this week is A Night to Remember, directed by Roy Ward Baker, uh, 1958 film. It's spine number seven, because uh, we are continuing our uh, movement through the Criterion Collection one at a time, as well as doing our picks. Uh, and A Night to Remember is, very simply, it's the supposed true story of the Titanic. It's that simple. That's it. Completely facts. No cap. Um, I actually, I ordered the Criterion DVD and it says, now without cap. <laughs> um, on the cover uh, they actually it's one of those stickers that you like have to take off you know like parental advisory right right it also had that too so a night to remember is trying to as much as possible recreate what uh the survivors of the titanic say Elf actually experience. happened yes yeah. exactly it's not it's obviously the the film to compare this to is titanic is james cameron's titanic i actually didn't make that connection that's an interesting observation which has very fictional characters and, you know, there's a re occasional references to sort of the lore of what actually happened. And I say lore, that's a, you know, it was a real tragedy. It actually happened. But the, the legend of what actually happened on the Titanic is not as focused on in uh, Titanic as it is in A Night to Remember, which is clearly based on actual survivor uh, memories. Did you yes. forget the term? Yes. The term for what happens when you remember something that That's happened? That's correct. <laughs> That's fine. You don't need to know that. The, what I was so interested in this mo with this movie is this is kind of like a modern Tower of Babel story. It is very much about like, I mean, the Titanic, right? It's like capitalism as like a tiny ship. It's this place where everyone can get whatever they want, but also there's like lower classes and they all con conflict with each other and anyone can get whatever they want if they ha have enough money. I, I really like how the designer 
of the Titanic, the ship had like was operating on the same metaphorical level as like the author of modern YA dystopian fiction. Like, okay, the rich guys are going to be on top and they're going to have a fancy room. And then the poor guys are going to live in the boiler room. And then when a tragedy happens, they die first. You're right. The person who who did Titanic, who, uh, who, who created the Titanic probably also did Maze Runner or Hunger Games or, uh, I don't know, Snowpiercer. Yeah. I mean, people would fight you on Snowpiercer being the same thing, but, but it is. It's the same, it's the same uh, to be it's clear, the same idea movie, it's just like movie, but yeah yeah i guess um i think it's a little bit overrated don't you understand at the front the rich people are there and at the back the poor people are there yeah don't but the understand? poor people get to eat the bugs and the and the rich people don't get to eat the bug cubes and i would love to because it looks like they taste good so i like to remember like we're ragging on this but it's actually pretty good i um i'm really i like red letter media I'm a big fan of them. I've oh, watched no. them for like 10 plus years. I don't know if you're familiar. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to write reviews. I remember um, on the the Mr. Plinkett, whatever, which is kind of like the big character that they've done. That's uh-huh. the like prequel. Of that's the, the voice that they reviewed the like prequel stuff. Weirdly, unfortunately, and- probably the most important voice in credit film criticism right now for young people. It was the people. originator. Realistically, it, it's... Yeah, Roger Ebert was like, but Mr. Plunkett, when he comes around, everyone better watch him. <laughs> That's what he said before he died. I re- They did like a Mr. Plunkett review of this Titanic. Sorry, no, the, the Titanic, the Titanic, the big one, the James mm-hmm. Cameron one, as compared to this. And the kind of joke there was that this was the boring one um, as compared to like the more exciting, the more exciting contemporary one where it's kind of like, oh, the, right the buttoned up kind of traditional, you know, old Hollywood sort of respectful versus modern kinetic shaky camera and everything. But Mm -hmm. just kind of took that joke completely seriously and on face value and assumed that nothing would happen in this, but uh, it's legitimately pretty exciting. It, It feels like a disaster movie kind of without really any asterisks it's very uh, you're right it's very beautiful it's not it it, it is not just what you kind of think it's going to be which is just like something you have to watch in class but you know the teacher doesn't you know is hung over and so she wheels out the like tv and is like we're gonna watch the thing about the titanic so you know take some notes maybe i'll quiz you later and then doesn't quiz you like it's not that you think that that's what it's going to be and it really is you're right it is a disaster movie it pairing this at right after godzilla last week uh felt very timely because it basically felt like we were creating blockbusters right there we were creating the roland emmerich type uh film that was so pervasive throughout the 90s and you know so we're still feeling the influence today like i think godzilla is the better movie for a lot of reasons but this really is a better disaster movie like there is you feel so much more the craftsmanship and i mean budget definitely is a factor but like when the water is rushing into the boiler room like that's just that's just straight up completely convincing like that's the same level of quality as you would expect i mean obviously it would be cg now but Uh insanely insanely impressive like everything with the water looked so good it also adopts power from the fact that obviously it really happens you actually are thinking the entire time about the actual people who had to deal with this and the terrifying concept of having yourself in that position because this is something they didn't expect Uh, they keep on hitting that 
really hard, which is a little obnoxious. But oh, it's unsinkable. We we never think that this they is going to happen. Talk about the ice so much, right? There's so much about. I think that there's an ice flow up ahead, and then three different ships having warnings about. Hey, have mm-hmm. you heard about this ice yet? Pretty crazy. Which another another reason why I think of it as the Tower of Babel story, where it's it's just the modern idea of like God Himself said, "Okay, this is too far. You guys took it too far. We're we're done." Yeah. And and All right, you guys you guys are getting a little bit crazy. I'm gonna give you a nice tabloid tragedy, and right. you can uh, you and guys you can, can settle down that. now. I mean, how often do you think that we need that in our modern landscape as well? The sort of idea that our hubris goes beyond our actual grasp. I think that that that's that that's what this story really comes down to as as and in its core is sort of that idea that it's unsinkable. It would be very easy for us to sit here and like villainize the people on the Titanic for thinking, oh, oh, oh we are never going to get sunk. We are so proud of ourselves and our national mm-hmm. pride and all that. But I think that the movie intensely humanizes them. I think that yeah. movie is so trying to make you understand the tragedy, even in the hubris, even in the sort of, uh, you know, men playing cards on the day, de- you know, waiting for the Titanic to sink. A lot, you know? a lot of very stately gentlemen. True. A lot of very stately gentlemen, a lot of very women that you would describe as handsome at mm. a point in time where that wasn't just the worst thing you could say about a human being. I would really compare this to also uh, The Grand Illusion, because The Grand Illusion is mm-hmm. also about that sort of old world going down. And so I think that Titanic has sort of the last gasp of properness and chivalry and mid-Atlantic accents. You know, these people mm-hmm. who are trying to preserve an old way of life that is just going down. Yeah, m- my connection there is to Godzilla, because... I think that's something I didn't really do justice because, I mean, there's there's so much with the funny lizard movie. But something I didn't really <laughs> do justice to in what I was talking about last time is I'll, I'll start with, with how it manifested in Godzilla. It's so much about people's desire to return to a sense of complacency. Because think about mm. in the beginning mm, that's true. when ships were being sunk by godzilla so many people were dying and then people were just going out on like fun little yacht trips and just like oh we don't we don't care who cares we're going to ignore the whole godzilla thing and you might say like oh that's an epic cinema sense plot hole but it's serving the thematic current of the movie which is the conflict the tension over acknowledging the dangers um and the the evils of this recurrent resurgent past and the battle for people to just get back to a sense of complacency and right. papering it over in their mind. And the, the the whole thing, realistically, kind of the the tension in that movie is a fight to return to the status quo, but a status quo that, you know, the wiser characters understand to be ultimately untenable because it's just going to keep bubbling up again and again. And that's exactly what this movie is also about, is these other people who are all trying to say, well, obviously it can't sink. Why are they bringing up us, uh, us up on deck? It's just a precaution. We're putting the women in the boats. I mean, like, why are we being separated? This is ridiculous. They're all kind of rebelling. And it would be very... I mean, I love how this movie is never takes sides. I mean, it does take sides, but what I mean is mm-hmm. it doesn't say the crew was right and the passengers were all idiots or the passengers were all, you know, right f- for complaining and the crew was dumb for not having seen the iceberg. And so they're just a bunch of screw ups uh, or, or even the, 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 
the person the 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 one uh group of people who gets the most blamed for the tragedy of the titanic is the ship nearby who who sees the flares and kind of ignores it but even Mm -hmm. them it is and that is only because you know they're very hubristic thinking why would that ship even want to send up flares clearly they're just you know shooting off fireworks they're having a fireworks show exactly and that's probably the most we get as far as like that's the bad guy that's the reason that this is you know that this tragedy actually happens where oh, so many oh, the titanic sir sending up flares well she's she simply must be being random yeah she's exactly. simply being random as hell and funny af Lol we can to bed. why are we so 2010s like humor this week because one of our movies a little bit later down the line put us in that headspace uh, that's, that's true that's true regarding what you're saying here it's i think that the thing that really sold me on this movie was showing all these different reactions in the face of death and how convincing that was. Like you have the crew member who gets drunk, you know, with the water lapping at his heels. He's just, he's just downing the whiskey shots. And when people are running past him saying, how do we get to the top? Oh my God, we're going to die. He's just like, you know, just all roads lead to Rome, my friends. Just just keep on keeping on. He rocks. He's one of my favorite characters. This Wait, is Sean a has an yeah, observation about a random character that also connect somehow connects to the inevitability of death. What? But it's all it's, <laughs> I mean, elephant in the room here, it's going back to Seven Samurai. It's going back to the I mean, every movie. Sean, you've done this with every movie. This goes back to Amar Korn. This goes back Stone. to, I mean, basically everything except Lady Vanishes. <laughs> well, yeah, because that basically, if a movie is good, it's like Seven Samurai. Mm. But the it's it's the Rosetta Stone, really, because like ultimately, what isn't there like an author somewhere? Ugh, fuck, I I wish I was smart and could remember the, his name, but he said like yeah, all art if it is to be serious and you know must deal with matters of life and death which you know is an annoying quote by probably a very annoying guy but it's it's something that i value when something is just so much about people discovering the boundary and Mm -hmm. and people who are just realistically having a fun little vacation you know they're just in transit one place to another i mean it's like you never think about this as this isn't your trip right you're going on the titanic oh you know i'm going to visit my sister in london and you know we're we're gonna play bridge or whatever and i'm just gonna take this fancy trip there but then you realize midway through and you know over some conflicts and some internal debate with reckoning with your present circumstance you eventually realize like oh no i'm facing down death like i'm going to die here and all the vastly different reactions that people have like there are people who exploit and trample each other but and there are people who you know just get drunk and ignore it and then there are like our main guy who we haven't really talked about but this is like where heroes are made the people who had this kind of ultimate selflessness, just this drive, this pure altruistic drive to save as many people as possible mm-hmm. to do their duty. And then at the very end to be guilty that you survived and think about, I could have saved one more person. And that very distinct and realistic, clear eyed reckoning with death and the mm-hmm. fact that it's you know a true story, it really made it hit. A lot of it's pretty boring, but the survivors that, that, that have to reckon with the fact that they survived and thus there are people who didn't. They, they have to reckon with other people's deaths. That's its own tragedy, obviously, that goes yeah. back to Seven Samurai. You're right. Dude, survivor's guilt is so lame. If I survived, I'd simply feel happy. I'd be like, hell yeah, I survived. And I'd probably like, 
you know, eat dinner afterward. Yeah, and then teabag like other people who didn't survive. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> I'd probably spit on their graves because like I won, I win, you didn't, you died, mm-hmm. and you're at the bottom of the ocean now. You're in Davy Jones' locker. Your soul is trapped under all those tons of water. You can't go to heaven or hell. That I, I think that that's part of what fascinates other people about Titanic so much is just that sort of feeling that this wasn't just a tragedy. Obviously, it was a huge tragedy. It happened and it was awful and everything, but that it felt so modern. It felt like such a shake up, like one of the last non-war related shakeups. I mean, the thing that we had, the only thing we really have to compare it to is COVID-19, right? In in modern mm-hmm. times, it, this sort of natural disaster kind of thing, whereas Titanic is sort of like, th- there's all this hubris going into it of like civilization itself is is perfect now. We, we've made it. And that hubris that we could ever think that we were above nature itself perfectly is 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 awful. And we don't have anything. I mean, obviously, war continues to, to happen. But the idea that it's not something that we do to ourselves, but that there is this outer uh, force that is continuing to keep our society at bay is is terrifying. Dude, fuck war, by the way. I'm completely over it. Oh, I, I thought, you know, in episode one, you said you were shipping out. You're, are you done? Well, I ended the war that I was in because ah, like gotcha. I'm the kind of guy I'm like Solid Snake, mostly in that I'm just like cool. But also I, they ship me out to to end a conflict and finish it. I was saying I was going in the Marines, but that was a lie. That was a cover. I was infiltrating Shadow Moses and you won't be hearing about Metal Gear Rex anytime soon. That also, that makes a lot of sense because you also record from within a cardboard box. I do. That's the explanation for the audio. I actually have a really (laughs) high quality microphone, but I'm hiding from a guard right now. His, there was a yellow exclamation point over his head, but I was successfully able to get inside my box. And in a little bit, I'll go back out. I've procured like a couple pieces of string, some rations, and um, I haven't gotten the, the silencer yet, so... Once they make a Metal Gear movie, then, um... Uh, they did. It was called Escape from New York. Sean? Yo. Why is there no John Carpenter in the Criterion Collection? There's David Cronenberg, which, yeah, like, sure. they're, they're on the same level. No, uh, not, no, not, not, no, Not similar no, whatsoever, no, no. But... Very dissimilar. I mean, Cronenberg also, I think, is considered they're more this... of a... More of a thinking man's auteur, whereas... Ah, uh, no, they're... Carpenter and Cronenberg, obviously they're very different, but they're the same tier of guy. I'm sorry. Like, one, you can't... I don't think if you're including one, then you can bar the other from from entry into the the good movie club on, on basis of quality or artistic Interesting. integrity. I, I have never seen... I'm double-checking in my head. I don't think I've ever seen a single Cronenberg movie. I just know his reputation and I know everything that everyone says about him. And he always seems like he's the artistic one, whereas Carpenter is like... Maybe a little bit more. I yeah. don't know. Same same kind of universe in my head. Cronenberg, Fair. a little bit... Well, I mean, what we really talk about it. I feel like a little bit overrated. I feel like a little bit... I'm one of those annoying guys who really likes to have annoying opinions. Like this thing that everyone likes, it's a little bit overrated. It's still good. And I don't really have anything bad to say about it, but I just think it's very slightly overrated. I don't even have anything to like argue about. I'm just like, uh, I think you should like it slightly less. (laughs) We'll get to that with the killer. I kind of have that same, same feeling as you or uh, like a differing feelings uh, as you, but I have the same feeling that you do about Cronenberg with the killer where it's like, "Eh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Let's do it. You say we'll get to it, but I feel like once we started on the extended Metal Gear reference that 
that marked the passage of one film into the next. All right. Uh, next up, we are starting. Uh, Sean, this is a momentous occasion. Bring out the champagne. We are starting our very first director miniseries. That was the sound of the, the champagne being opened. The, we are going through all of the films of John Woo because there are only three in the Criterion Collection. And I really wanted to watch all of them because I, I've started to get into some of his uh, American work. And so uh, getting into you know his origins uh, outside of uh, the States was, was really important to me. And so we are going to be covering this week, we have uh, The Killer. Next week, we have Hard Boiled. And the week after that, we will be covering uh, the third film that he has in the Criterion Collection that I have forgotten the name of at this exact moment. We've been talking about doing this for the past week, and... <laughs> We, we just decided to never learn the name of the other movie. We're like, okay, The Killer, then Harborough, and then the other one, Unnamed John Woo Project. <laughs> Last hurrah for chivalry. It is a okay. very, very, very recent release from for yeah. John Woo. It, it was just, just came out in the Criterion Collection last month. We've got mm. these two John Woo films back to back here, and so I just figured we should we should figure out we should uh, finish off his him as a miniseries. I've been wanting to do a miniseries on a direction uh, on a director. We'll be doing this more regularly as as we get deeper into the and and more professionally, more with a little bit more panache as we get deeper into uh, the Criterion Collection. But for now. Let's just finish off some really cool John Woo movies. Let's just finish off John Woo. So I thought you were going to say that Last Hurrah for Chivalry is a very, very, very John Woo movie title. Because <laughs> the name he has for his own films is Heroic Bloodshed, right? That's mm. the thing that, that he calls them. It's appropriate. It's so appropriate. Because it really is just the coolest guys of all time doing the most important, momentous, world-shaking actions of all time, which is shooting guns in double hands awesomely. John Woo has such a trademark style with the pigeons and sort of the, or not pigeons, the doves, the doves I meant. The, the doves. doves, of course. The sort of, uh, the glasses, the way that everyone always holds two guns at the same time. Propelling yourself along the ground with the momentum of shooting your guns. Insane performances that go over the top in, in you know, in sort of face-off and all that, and yeah, he's got a very specific kind of style. He's got that really bright sort of blowouty lighting that just in- envelops the character as they walk in. And you're like, oh, I get it because this is supposed to be a hero. We we understand yeah. because the lighting is bright. I really like how simplistic the lighting is in all of these movies. because I mean, it doesn't look unprofessional or anything, but yeah, no. sometimes he does something like that. And then other times it's just it's just lit like a sitcom. Sometimes it is a little, little weird. I actually really liked lighting in this movie. So the killer is, uh, would you like to to break it down for us? I would love to break it down for us. So the killer is about the coolest guy of all time. He is an assassin who meets his friend in a church. His friend hands him a briefcase with a picture of a guy in it and some guns, and he goes and kills them. The titular killer's name in this movie is Jeff. And here we have another movie about an assassin named Jeff, wherein a hit goes awry uh, involving a woman, you know, being being implicated in some way. Who he falls in, uh, falls a little bit for, and so well, who no, it's not unclear really. his loyalty for, and then the, you know, cop comes for him. And... and then the people who killed him try and kill him. If I had a nickel, it's weird that I have two nickels. Okay, hold on, let me try again. If I, I have two nickels, it's weird that this happened twice. 
can, can I try that again? You can. If I wouldn't have to. So he, um, <laughs> that's a very funny connection. I also really like when Asian guys have shitty American names like Jeff, Jerry. I'm I. confused a little bit, Sean. I don't remember his name being Jeff. The subtitles for me listed him him as Jeff. And I said, okay, there's probably, that's probably not his name. And then I looked it up um, on Wikipedia uh-huh. and they have him as Jeff there. I mean, maybe there's like a more accurate translation. So am I crazy? Ajong? Is Ajong not his name? Man, I th- subtitles just interpreted. I think in uh-huh. like the American release or whatever, but to me, he is Jeff. Fair enough. Well, no, to be more me, more importantly, he is Mickey Mouse. Okay, at least that was the same. Did you watch this in English? No, I watched it subtitled. So I'm looking at the credits now. It says that his name is Jeffrey in English, and in Cantonese, they call him Joe, which is weird because they kept on calling him Ajong, which I guess you could probably uh, shorten that to Joe. I think we should talk about this for 15 more minutes. So in my reality, so the Mandela effect did happen. The timeline was split. In my reality, we have a guy named Jeff and the lady's name is Jenny and the hit goes awry. He, there's a, a lady singer, kind of a lounge singer, and he does this assassination. There's this big firefight that breaks out and he accidentally fires a gun right in her face and he makes her eyes explode. Um, mm-hmm. There's a Mortal Kombat x-ray, it zooms right in, and we see her corneas just burst. That was a little bit weird to me, because it seems like if that happened, the more natural thing is that... I mean, I don't care about science, I don't know how this would happen, I think it's stupid if you know about science, but oh, sure. I feel like deafness would be the more likely thing there, right? Having a gun fired right next to you, would the muzzle flash be enough? I don't know, I, it's not... Cinemasins, it's totally flower. It totally works for the movie, I think that they, they sell the moments oh, yes. well enough. It's the reason, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the reason the movie works, but that's the, that's the source of the melodrama Mm -hmm. because she's blind, she can't see shit, and Jeff feels guilty about this, and he runs into her again, he saves her from some Yakuza NPC muggers who attack Mm. her with very limited AI who are level one. He dispatches them very easily. You're right though, that this is, this is very much likely samurai in in that opening sort of like walking into the club, the, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the woman is the singer and, and just kind of, he's looking at her and he knows that she's going to get involved and he doesn't want to, you know, he's got the gun he's going to some office in the back. I, I was actually looking this up a little bit. Uh, John Woo is so clearly influenced by Le Samurai. It is insane. It's uncanny. I mean, Le Samurai mm-hmm. kind of influenced everything, as as we talked about on that episode uh, very briefly. John Woo actually wants to re remake Le Samurai, which is funny because we watched Ghost Dog. That was the remake of Le Samurai. But yeah. he uh, actually yeah. was attached hey, to remaking it. Already did it. He did it. You don't need to. Woo, back off. Come on. It's sort of the Sean sensibility. It is that uh, thing where... You like those movies uh, that have what do you say above average combat skills for their for their guys who he they kind of just walk in they're really good at some kind of of environment or something right exactly and this guy's literally a killer and uh, but they have some sort of honor they have a code that they have to like hold themselves to man that's what happens with this killer after he realizes that he's blinded this woman he starts to help her out yeah and they they have a romance transitions like very seamlessly you might even say abruptly into just them being together but that's the core melodrama 
of the thing because it really is a melodrama. I mean, it's about awesome guys shooting guns, but it's also so much about, it's a treatise on what it takes to preserve beauty and innocence in this world and a rumination on what is goodness. Um, Can you do terrible things, but can you be saved? Can your soul be preserved by taking the precious things in the world and preserving them? But of course, the the real romance of the film is another version of this precious sort of relationship. It's not just the romantic one. It's the friendship that he has with the inspector. Because this is a this is a heat type movie because you have you follow oh, it's both completely heat. you follow both uh, Jeffrey or Ajong and Inspector uh, it was called in- he was named Inspector Lee for me who is trying to you know track him down and and eventually take him in but Inspector Lee quickly realizes that this this killer has nobility to himself he he clearly wants to he he saves a girl he he has like four save the cat moments for like like four different like moments of like you're rooting for this guy because he has a good heart first obviously it's the girl it's the girl who loses her sight then uh, there's a later scene where he takes a girl to the hospital who's injured in the middle of a firefight and he risks his life for her there's just so much stuff where it's just trying to point out how that this guy has like a good heart even though he's a little bit of a stalker of this this blind woman um the inspector realizes that he has such a code of honor um and starts to admire him well it's it's that you know that in the literal sense um you know plot wise that's the idea is he he kind of understands this guy to be a little bit of a level above this kind of criminal underworld that he deals in and you know the i don't think we address the conflict of the movie I, i think it's easy enough to get by the premise we've given you alone that eventually his uh his guys turn on him the people who hired him turn on him and they want him dead it, wow it's like like samurai it's like ghost dog it's, it's like <laughs> is it i don't know i actually didn't catch that at all i think it's like the red shoes because it's awesome well, here's what we'll do we'll dispense with the ajong with the lee with the jeff and the whatever let's call them mickey mouse and dumbo because there's an incredible scene um, they don't do a lot of jokes Sean, with Jenny we, being blind. Sean, we can't, uh-huh. we can't, because I know what you're talking about, and I have a completely different translation for that scene as well. They okay. call him Shrimp Head and something else. I can't remember what the other one is. Numb one of them nuts? calls the other some, yeah, some kind of like. I looked dummy. it up in the interim. It's something like I like Mickey Mouse and Dumbo better. Mm, Jeff slash Ajong is Mickey Mouse, and the cop is Dumbo. I like that. Can we go with that? Sure. They don't do a lot of jokes uh, with Jenny's blindness, but they they do a little bit. They do enough to justify it. Where she comes in, these two guys are confronting each other. They're holding guns to each other's head. Any scene that happens in this movie between two male characters, you can assume they're pointing guns at each other, which is fine. Them pointing the guns at each other while she's in the room, like thinking that they're friends, thinking that this is some old friend of his, is perfect it's not even just like a joke i mean it's what the movie is it's sort of it's what the whole movie is it's these guys who like care so much about like i'm trying to get this guy and i'm so good and it reminds me of rrr recently of sort of these guys are so perfectly matched for each other they're so you know the killer always gets away so i guess the cop's not perfect but they're so perfectly matched for each other in that like every move that they make is mirroring one another to make sure that they don't give up like an advantage, like lose their footing or point at the wrong spot on the other person's body, point the gun or whatever. They're companions just in the realm of transcendence above humanity mm. that they both right. that they both reach just through martial prowess and focus yep. 
and a sense of beauty as well. And they're introducing themselves to her as old friends. They're like, oh, we used to play football together, which mm. I'm sure in your translation was high lie or some shit. No, but they was, introduce each other. Okay. Soccer. They they introduce each other as old friends, Mickey Mouse and Dumbo, which is what we're going with. And they, they continue to refer to each other by those names throughout the rest of the movie as kind of allegiances shift and they find themselves ultimately taking a line against this mob of gangsters. There's another character who's sort of Jeff's contact within the criminal underworld who's also... Mm -hmm. You know, who plays around with betraying Jeff a little bit, but ultimately falls on the side of honor and decides to march in there and try and recover Jeff's hit money yeah. so that he can get Jenny surgery. Another one of the many comical Save the Cat moments where it's just, we have to give this woman's, this blind woman surgery. Mm -hmm. Like that's what we need the the assassin money for. And that's why he does like his one last job is he's like, I need the money for, for her. I have to do the money for her surgery and also the leftover money. I'm going to make sure that they don't have to bulldoze the rec center. Mm -hmm. But you're right. You're, you're right. There is sort of this, there's a couple of different relationships here. So the, the killer obviously has a relationship with, with Jenny, with the, with the blind woman. Uh, and then there's the relationship with the inspector, which is pseudo like I, and I'm not trying to be like, well, you know, my reading is that it's romantic. There is mm. literally the first time they meet, they play like this like 80s kind of uh, how would you even describe it? A love kind of ballad kind of playing in the background. Like eyes meeting at the school dance. Yes, exactly. Like they play that and you're like, oh, well, okay. And I'm not, so I'm not trying to ascribe anything to that. I just mean that this is also one of the core relationships that he has is sort of the, his relationship with the inspector. And then, yeah, he's got brother, uh, the, his, his brother in arms who betrays him and then goes back on the betrayal and like tries to make up for it. And he keeps on calling himself his brother and keeps on saying, you know, I, I'm trying to make up for what I've done and I'm trying to like, be your great friend and he's the innocent who clearly is gonna it's gonna take one for the team you know i was looking out for all the john woo stuff uh the mm -hmm. the sort of filmmaking techniques that he's known for oh you you could say you had your bird watching goggles yes exactly and so one of the number one things is you know who the hero is because they're surrounded by doves that's just the most obvious thing obviously the killer literally starts by being surrounded by candles and doves in a church that's mm -hmm. it, just how we church. start, right? And it's an awesome church or whatever. But there's always that shot where someone enters the room and the doves go and fly all over the place. And usually you give that to the hero. It's the stinking, uh, it's it's Nicolas Cage as John Travolta in in uh, in Face Off, right? Where he walks into the, he also walks into a church, surprise, surprise. And of course the doves fly all over the place. You don't give that to the villain. And so I was expecting at any point for the killer to the, the killer, the main character, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse himself to get that shot. Instead, the brother gets that shot when he walks in and he's completely bloodied. The brother has gone back to he's not his literal brother. I'm just calling him the brother. His brother in arms, his blood brother. He he goes back to the sort of uh, the mobster who who he's hired by and he fights through a bunch of guys. Also, my least favorite scene in the movie, because he just suddenly his arm which has not been working the whole movie just suddenly works and it's just because i don't know he found the will within himself or something and then he just shoots at uh, his way through it he comes back into the the church and that's when he gets the dove shot where he's bloodied he is going to he's clearly about to his die at moments. any moment 
and he gets the dove shot and it's to show that this is the hero this is the guy who is being selfless who who has that redemption arc yeah and they have that final moment and that there's much made um in the movie about mickey mouse he always keeps one last bullet in the chamber always and it's either for his enemy or for himself he's got a gun he's got the one last bullet he's he's cradling his dying companion which doesn't make any sense you always have one last bullet for your enemy or, or for yourself like what who else are you gonna kill what do you mean? You, you If you have six bullets in your gun and you mm-hmm. shoot five of them, then just so you know, that last bullet, unless the, the fourth one or the fifth one was also to kill you, then that last one is to kill either your enemies or yourself. What is the face you're making right now, Sean? I'm making the office gym face because you're making a fool out of yourself because you don't get it. <laughs> I am looking as office gym does to the camera and I don't want to say it. It it pains me so deeply to say this about you, but you're a Dwight right now. Oh. You're Dwighting it up because you don't understand. I'm going to put you in jello and you're going <laughs> to drown. But he's he's cradling his dying brother in his arms. Mm. He has the last bullet. He's asking Mickey Mouse over and over again. From, he's saying like, you know, am I a dog or am I a man? He's like, am I a dog or what? am I a man or whatever? I don't want to be put down like a dog is something he says. And then he's like, okay, anyway, so shoot me. <laughs> yeah. But, but he's not being put down like a dog. He's being put down like, like a man who went out trying to preserve something beautiful in the mm. world. Who he, he went out fighting for really the, the ultimate virtue in a John Woo film is beauty, is aesthetic beauty, is purity. And that's not in conflict necessarily with with the violence and murder and killing, because that tr- that can become transcendent when Guns are in the hands. And I think the dual wielding is actually very important here because think about what it is when you dual wield. When you dual wield guns, you are using every available limb to you to transfigure yourself into a vessel of violence. I mean, I don't know. I, he, he doesn't have a foot gun like it's stinking uh, the Grindhouse movie. You need your feet to do flips. So you're being ridiculous. You're right using now. every limb available. Yeah. You're using your tongue. Well, okay. What you could be doing is you could have a sword in your mouth, like Zoro from One Piece, but nice. That wasn't around yet. We will be discussing One Piece on the Criterion Collection. Let's um, let's not. It is legitimately better than like ninety nine percent of it. Any given chapter from One Piece clears fucking the lady vanishes or whatever. Neg diff. It's so sad that that has to be at the bottom of our list for so long because I feel like we're never gonna. Not sad for me. Fuck that movie. That is also the one to beat, but in the other direction that we're gonna have to deal with forever. The thing here for me is like the transcendent vibe. This is the thing that really tips this into like masterpiece territory for me is how clearly the realize the vision of beauty is. It's not just the the kind of cliched image of like a young woman who is innocent who, you know, we're, we want to preserve her life. We want to preserve her vision. There's that right. too, but it's also just the way that Wu transfigures violence into this beautiful, artful thing. And Chow Yun-Fat is such an insanely synergistic actor here. And and attractive, true. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're talking like beauty and all that, yeah. Yeah, like his mix of stoicism and sensitivity is just so pitch perfect. I can't imagine anybody else you know, working here. It's like right. there, there was a deck that in standard that has like a really, really good mid-range shell, a lot of really great value cards, just perfectly suited to tackle everything, but it just mm. needs a really solid four drop to really bring it all together. And Chow Yun-Fat is Shieldred the Apocalypse. It's just like complete silver bullet perfect 
this right. is what you needed. The, and this all culminates in the final shootout in the church, which, I mean, there's too much to talk about. It's incredible. It's perfectly, it's so many perfect set pieces. So insanely fun. The inspector has officially turned over to Jeffrey's side. Yeah, they're shooting back to back. Doing flips together. They're they're being awesome. And they're at first it seems like he's like, well, well, I'll arrest you as soon as this is all over. And then it becomes very clear that that's never going to happen. The inspector is not going to actually arrest him. And they're there with Jenny and poor Jenny, man. By the end of this, she has no sight whatsoever. And she is stumbling around with no concept of any like... Like every time someone enters, she says like, who is it? And they never get let up on that because and no one ever tells her. <laughs> so yeah. for all she knows, like someone could have been dead way closer to when way, way sooner than they actually were. It is very sad, but you, they have that awesome shootout in the church that is lit by candlelight and eventually by fire at, at, you know, when they get outside the church. Something I think is very funny it occurred to me jenny realizes eventually that um that mickey mouse is a killer that he's an assassin the cop Mm. tells her this much but never once does she ever realize that she that he was the one who blinded her right i are you you trying to rack your brain to remember it because i'm i don't think it ever happens they have a scene where the inspector sits her down no yeah that that she's an an assassin you're right. He doesn't actually tell her that he's the one who blinded her. Because the only one who would know that is Mickey Mouse himself. And he just, he never gets a chance to tell her or, you know, well, he, he chooses not to tell her, but she, she never realizes. So the last part of the movie is the, the gangster and guy takes Jenny hostage. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a clever little thing where Mickey Mouse decides like, okay, I'm going to take the shot. I'm going to drop my gun. He's going to shoot me. And I'm going to pull this gun from my homie's waistband to make the final shot um, mm. to, to free Jenny. And he does. In the, the little chaos scramble that comes afterward, uh, Mickey Mouse gets blinded um, yep. in a very like kind of funny over the top way. Also, just the practical effect of his eyes like being shot out are just like so nightmarish and just look like yep. so awful that it's legitimately like kind of funny this is the most silly part of the movie even though i, I it's good i i i wouldn't imagine the movie it's clown it. shoes chilly and it's silly and it made me want to cry because it's the most tragic thing i've ever he seen lays on the ground and he's blind and jenny's also blind and they're both they're screaming for each other on the ground for and each they're other. trying to grab each other and they end up passing each other by and then he falls down and he dies that was the moment i wish ha- that he had revealed that he was the killer the whole time because that would have that, that he was the killer that he was the the woman the man who blinded her because i think that that would have added some well he the thing is he was gonna look at the camera and be like i was the killer the whole time but he his eyes were shot out so he couldn't find the camera so he, died. <laughs> he couldn't gym face the other thing is that there the tragedy of this scene is earlier in the in the movie when he was talking to the inspector he said if i die here give my eyes to jenny so that she can see so that she, you know whatever imagine dying in this kind of way the, your last vision is already behind you that's it's just terrifying and that's the last we see of jenny is her like pawing blindly around on the ground because afterward the cops all show up on mass he's the last guy and he turns himself over you know to, to preserve his own life because he know he knows that dumbo is coming for him 
about to bear down on him like the angel of death, and he turns himself over. And Dumbo just says, hey, hey, guys, let, let me clap the cuffs on him. And he just shoots him. He kills mm-hmm. him, you know, because he says, like, this is everything beautiful in the world has been sullied. And this guy is responsible. He's he's trod all over it. And it's completely unforgivable. He needs to die for it. Just the clarity of vision of the rage and fury of someone who doesn't understand, like, what is beautiful in this world and how clearly realized that vision of beauty was it just you're right that's a good reading sean simplistic is the one thing you can say but to me it's pure it's just such a pure movie at the beginning of the movie they literally have the killer in this sort of gray suit by Mm -hmm. the end he is in complete white you literally have dumbo in this black suit and by the end he is also taken off his his black coat so he is also wearing white it is very simplistic but you're right it's beautiful It, it pisses me off so much that like so many people can watch this movie and this is a type of guy i'm making up in my head but i think it exists where people who are like making fun of this like oh it's so goofy it's so over the top it's not like, goofy oh, it's mickey really... excuse me dude the killer only has mickey mouse rings um <laughs> he has no legitimate championships that's a sports metaphor and i'm against it <laughs> if you take away all of my all of my sports magic the gathering and what else do i do the I don't video know. Game? Watch movies. No. That's really it. That's anime. No anime. anime. Okay, yeah. If you take that's the holy <laughs> trinity. If you take those out, and also like my, you know, some of my commentary kind of on uh, on geopolitical issues would be a little racy. Those are the four pillars of the things that I say. And if you're just cutting them all out, it's not. You're gonna. It's gonna be like a hack job of just me being like, I thought this movie was good. That's all that's going to be left if you cut out all that other shit. Like, come on, you got to leave me something here. You know Sunglasses Guy, whose name I never catch? Sunglasses Guy in this movie? Yeah, yeah, kind of the, he's the boss grunt. Right, He and he's like, I will take them on or whatever. I love that he doesn't come in until the end. Like, he doesn't fight them until the very end. No, he just comes in and he lands one hit and turns the tide. His arrival, I love that because what you would think is that halfway through this movie, you'd get like sort of the scene, the like Boba Fett type scene where the big boss is like, you will have to take him on. And then they're like, yes, as you wish. And then he'll go out and he'll like fight them a couple times and they'll barely escape and be like, oh, but we have to take him out. Instead, he's in the final fight only and he completely blindsides them. And I love yeah. that, that that little playing with the structure thing. He is also sort of this embodiment of, I am a Terminator. I'm here just to kill, and I'm, I am I don't see any beauty in the world. I'm literally wearing all black, and yeah. Sorry, I was working myself up thinking of, like, the nostalgia critic watching this movie, and <sighs> just going like, This doesn't make any sense! Why are there doves everywhere? Why are there so many doves? Why does the cop like them now? Why are they friends? Are you sure that was the nostalgia critic and not... Also, Mickey Mouse. Nostalgia Critic and Mickey Mouse are like two sides of the same coin, kind of. But I'm just imagining his ass watching this and just, I'm doing the Arthur balling my fists right now in both hands. (laughs) Nostalgia Critic also will be a recurring theme here because we are watching all of the movies. To boldly flee is my pick next week. Sean, again, again, if you watch all the uh, Olympic movies... I will watch all the Nostalgia Critic movies for this podcast. So tune in in seven years when we get to that for the conclusion to this saga. That's going to be so fun. We should do a special episode, actually. We should be like going through a bunch of the Olympic movies like week by week, just maybe one or two of them every week. And then at the end of the year, 
Oh, that would be awesome. A charity live stream where we like raise money for something and we're and we're just like, okay, we're gonna keep on reviewing because there's like fifty of these things. So we can go through these one by one and talk about whatever. That's awesome. We should do that. The killer, it it is a great introduction to John Woo and sort of his sensibility, and I am just so excited uh, to to continue and continue to find more movies like Les Samurai, like Ghost Dog, like The Killer, like Drive, like The Driver, like Baby Driver, that are these sort of... A little bit of free association there. Uh, or like Heat, like these guys that who are, it's like, I am the best at my job and my job is crime. <laughs> You're going to be a lot in for a lot more of that with me. I just want to shout out the Criterion Collection for having this at number eight. This is a Riz full pick that I would not have expected this low and this early. It's fa- basically the first contemporary film they put out. I, I, so yeah. as far as spine these spine numbers right because it's number it's number eight and it is a 1989 film and before that the earliest movie they had put out was Amar and that's a 70s there's a guardian angel for me on the criterion board of directors who's who's throwing in a little bit for me they travel back in time or forward in time with the same time machine that i used to get here they were they were like okay sh- we got to throw in a few more for sean because he's going through a rough time in his life right now. I was re-listening to that 90s time travel episode. You mm. so whiff so bad on, on, on the 90s thing. It's so funny. You blindsided me. I did. I did. But it was it was. Worth I got it. better. At, hey, we saved it near the end. We had a whole thing about Kevin Spacey. <sighs> you didn't cut that out. I haven't yet. I haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> okay. But you didn't cut that out. Because now this part wouldn't make any sense. And you can't cut this part out yeah, either. We had a whole Kevin Spacey thing. And uh, if you go back and listen to it, you can see whether or not we actually cut it out on the episode, The 90s Time Traveler. So now we are going to move on to my pick for the week, which is our third film, The Great Dictator, directed by Charlie Chaplin, of course. It's a 1940 film. Spine number 565. Have you seen the co- Criterion cover for this movie? I have not. It is awesome. It's 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 got like it's orange or or maybe a nice red and it just has the silhouette of the sort of Charlie Chaplin bowler hat under which is the Charlie Chaplin mustache under which is the Hitler hairstyle but flipped upside down so it looks like so depending on how oh. you hold how you hold the Criterion case Sean right now is twisting his head upside down. Charlie Chaplin and Hitler, two sides of the same coin. I picked this movie because I am a fan of Charlie Chaplin. I, I've watched a couple of his movies, uh, the big ones. I watched City Lights. I've seen Modern Times. Those are the two I really like. Then I've also seen Gold Rush and The Kid, which I did not like as much. And this one falls squarely in the middle of those for me. I picked this movie, and yet I, I really don't have that very strong a reaction to it i know that i'm coming at it from the other side of 80 years of uh hitler jokes and i ideas about exactly what led to the rise of fascism in germany and people don't really want to hear him but i've got some theories about how that happened <clears throat> anyway it's it's a it's well-tried territory at this point Correct. And the thing I keep on bringing up about sort of living in a post-World War II movie or post-World War II world. Our life a movie. Is is very – it really applies to our sort of criticism of this film because this is a movie about – it is a 1940 film. So World War II was just on its way. Yeah. 
and America had not entered the uh, it had not entered uh, the war because Hitler was, actually hadn't been born yet. This movie predicted Hitler. I think that it is still such a film that the, everyone keeps on referencing this film as like one of the great uh, begin, early satires, and and it's so poignant and whatever. I don't think it's that poignant. I think it's just hey, Hitler's very foolish. And sometimes yeah. it would be funny if slapstick and Nazis, I mean, to be fair, slapstick and Nazis go together like peanut butter and jelly. Like mm-hmm. e- even in something that's a little less slapstick, like Indiana Jones, it really hits when you have a Nazi making a fool of himself or like, I don't know, burning his hand and like looking at it and going, ah, like it's. Or it's an so anvil falling on his head and he goes sure. cross side. Exactly. That, you know, that's great uh, satire. But I think that the great dictator is not, one of Charlie Chaplin's best works. I think that it is too sappy, too maudlin. I like the speech at the end, sure, like everyone else, but I don't think it's this transcendent work or anything. I think that most of the film spends too much time trying to convince itself that or convince us that it's funny rather than actually being funny with a few Ooh. set pieces. Imagine making a comedy movie and someone describes your <laughs> jokes, like the jokes that you made as trying to convince us that it's funny. Well, like, it's damn. like not that's because there's not a lot of jokes. It's a lot of like, I hit you over the head with a frying pan or or stuff. The, the stuff that's really good in this movie is sure. There's sort of the imitation of Hitler. That's funny sometimes. And, and that can be a little funny because, I mean, these are people who went to the movies and probably saw a newsreel beforehand that would tell them about what's going on in Europe and around the world and everything. So they've seen, like, clips of Hitler going in, yeah, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, that is, that they would understand where that's coming from. It'd be like if someone right now did a Barack Obama impression on SNL. You know, it's just yeah. very obviously something. Or on a movie podcast. Able to, like this. <laughs> It would I go can't a just do the voice. Like, I can't. No, come on. I can't just do that. Sean, if you don't do it now, I'm going to introduce you as Barack Obama next week. <laughs> Get ready for that, guys. The The imitation is so uh, bland. I, I like the first introduction to him. Let me let me see if I can if I can kind of vocalize what I think you're trying to say sure, here is. Sure. Dressing up as somebody and making them do something stupid isn't really it's the same satire. thing as yes, satire. Exactly, it is just be saying, "Hey, this person dumb." And I like the the translator bit because I think that that is actually real. I think the idea that like they recontextualize and retranslate Hitler's message so that Americans wouldn't get to the thing that he actually thinks is really mm-hmm. funny. That is actually invoking something that that it's commentating on something. And so that early scene is great, but the rest of the the stuff that he does, you know, he's dancing around with the ball of the world. It's like, no, this isn't satire. He literally wants to be to rule the world. I don't know what you're what you're trying to add here. And the the Mussolini stand in too. I mean, come on, this is it's so ridiculous. They throw pies, and you're like, oh yes, because Hitler. We don't like Hitler. Like it it's does, one of it's the like satire. most facile criticisms of Mussolini. Only really ever topped by the uh, the Guillermo del Torio, del Torio. Fuck me, the the Pinocchio one. Sure, sure. <laughs> Guillermo del Torio. Leave that in. That one is barely satire too, because it's just like, and what if Pinocchio was in you know fascist Italy like it and doesn't... he said and he said the the that uh, that fascism was poopy oh yeah, well, if you did not like it and then uh, the villain was like curse you Pinocchio 
Curse you, Pinocchio. Fie to the depths of hell with thee, wooden demon. We're gonna get to it. I think Del Toro's like kind of a hack. Like, I like him. Like, I think he's nice. And Pacific Rim is awesome. And you know, there, there are shades to it, right? Like, you can be a little bit of a hack. I think he's a little bit of a hack that much well we'll get to that when we get to to covering his films in the criterion collection like pacific rim no i'm kidding (laughs) should be but the great dictator i yeah i i see what you're saying here i mean and you know comedy is just so subjective that's another um i should have done that at the top of the the top of the hour art Uh, is so comedy just it's so so, well i mean comedy especially though right oh sure very bound to a time and place and in context I found myself chuckling quite a bit at this movie. The verbal jokes and wordplay I wasn't so much into, and there was a lot of potty humor, and there's just no need for that. A lot of the physical stuff, like, really, that hit for me. Them shuffling around the coin and the pudding. Best scene. That's such classic Chaplin stuff. That was, I was bursting out laughing alone just at, like, the weird comedy of manners of them, like, someone discovers the coin and is like, okay, and I'm just gonna slip it right there. And then the one guy who takes it seriously finds it, and he goes, gentlemen, it's 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 been been a pleasure, pleasure. but I am to die. (laughs) So Charlie Chaplin plays both a satire of Hitler, named Hinkler. Hinkle. I'm so much better at remembering movies than you. Hinkle. He plays both this uh, version of Hinkle that is satirical, but by which it means that he makes a fool of himself and uh, is very silly about everything that he says. Sometimes his pants fall down. Another role that Charlie Chaplin plays is a Jewish man living in Germany who fights during the war, gets amnesia, forgets that he fought in the war, and is it goes into a coma and then reemerges at when uh, the fascists have taken over Germany. And thus he has to adapt to sort of, wait a second, I can't walk down the street without people pointing out that I'm a Jew? A lot of the comedy comes from that. And I honestly thought that this was just going to be something they don't acknowledge, that they're just like, Charlie Chaplin is, plays both these roles, but we're never going to acknowledge that like he both of these roles look like Charlie Chaplin. At the end, he is supposed to do his own mission in which he leaves for a nearby country and uh, he's dressed like a Nazi soldier. And because of that, they mistake him for Hitler. And you suddenly realize, oh, everyone in this universe does actually think he looks like Hitler. You can tell at what point in the movie, going by my notes, that the edible hit. Uh, well, first, the the last good observation I had was... Why would you the, do that the... to yourself for the great dictator? I, I wasn't expecting much. So the... The thing between that I thought kind of mapped over between The Great Dictator and Uncut Gems, the kind of thematic through line is um, a Jewish guy who uses Jewish swags and Jewish excellence to to get a woman who is way out of his league to let him hit because he's goofy. I don't think most of the characters who play Jewish people in this movie are Jewish. That's weird, right? Because I feel like even even at that point, there were enough Jewish guys knocking around in Hollywood. I mean, this is supposed to be a takedown of Germany more than it is. Yeah, the sort of, universality of it. It's more than it is supposed to be like a representation of the Jewish experience. Whereas this movie is way more occupied with taking down Hitler's regime as a concept, if that makes yeah. any sense. So I, yeah, it's okay. The woman in this movie, you're right, is totally out of his league. She's just dropped at gorgeous which is weird to say about someone in black and white in like uh i didn't know they had attractive women that's not what i meant (laughs) 
I'm, I meant That's like it. she's got the eyeshadow. She's doing this weird like oh, I talk like this, hey, Mister. How you do it? Like you know that kind of. She talks like a like a newsboy. Right, exactly. And obviously, there are plenty of screwball comedies or romantic films that that use that sort of thing that still have beautiful people in them. Barbara Stanwyck is great in Lady Eve, stuff like that. But you know, it, it, it this is such a broad movie. That's all I meant. Barbara Stanwyck looks so much like my grandma when she was young for all the people in the audience who personally know my grandma <laughs> i'm sure you're you're nodding your head and stroking your chin right now and being like oh yeah going on to um well, wait a sec wait a sec i i have to tell you about my grandmother then oh, okay yeah go ahead my grandmother looks like jamie lee curtis that's awesome She's she styles her hair differently, but that's what I've always said. So shout out to my grandmother. There we go. Now now we've covered our whole audience because now half of them obviously know your grandmother and half of them know my grandmother. And they're mortal fucking enemies, but we're <laughs> bridging the gap. So my other really good notes uh, besides that one is I have an observation about how I want to make like AMVs of black and white movies and set them all to one by Metallica. Again, this is not a silent movie. I didn't say it was a silent movie. I said it was an old movie. Oh, oh okay, cool. Do you know what an AMV is? Do you not know what an AMV is? No idea. It's an anime music video. You take a song, usually by Linkin Park, and you you know, you cut together from your favorite anime, like Death Note or whatever, and yeah, you set I've it to it. I've seen several of these, even though I don't... There we go. Imagine one by Metallica, right? And all of this is happening. Charlie Chaplin is goofing off, goofing around. It would be like really ironic because... One is like a commentary on war and how bad it is. And this movie is also about that. So it would be pretty crazy. It's the kind of thing you see where you're like, oh, cool. Like, whatever. One Piece characters like running around and you hear like, I've become so numb. I can like or whatever, like that kind of thing. One Piece is a really good fit with that, too. <laughs> Luffy's goofy ass doing a, a gum gum gatling with Chester Benningfield screaming about killing himself. But the, the next thing is Hinkle keeps addressing congregations of men as gentlemen in a way that really reminded me of aqua teen hunger force so you know i'm you know i'm completely on my stoner shit once i'm freaking referencing that that crazy ass crap um Mm. and then my favorite one i have is i make the note of it's funny how i assume yeah they play by the same actor i thought it would be a plot point that they get switched up or mistaken for each other but just never comes up in the movie and there's like five minutes left in the movie so we know it's not going to happen and then my next note is oh what the fuck literally as soon as i type <laughs> that because then immediately they mistake him for hinkle and he gives this mu- uh, beautiful monologue that everyone says is so great in in one of the scenes of great talking in cinema or whatever and it's it's basically like hitler one of the scenes of great talking in cinema (laughs) it's basically like i mean there's more complexity to it they talk he talks a lot about the march of technology it's so funny i i wanted to love this movie because so much of it is talking about that border but that we keep on bringing up you keep talking about death i keep talking about how world war ii has changed all of western civilization forever Mm -hmm. i mean and eastern civilization but um, specifically Western is what I keep bringing don't up. Don't get me started on Northern civilization. Uh, or, uh, but Southern civilization we don't speak about. Southern civilization is like always doing okay. We never need to check up on them. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Antarctica, there's like alarms going off. Like mm. the penguins are all like running away for, they're like, we, we've created penguin Hitler. No. <laughs> oh, fuck. Not again. They have penguin Hitler every seven years down there. It's popping off in Antarctica. It's penguin Hitler, but he looks exactly like the dude from Surf's Up. 
what I was trying to say is that this is a movie that should, feels like it should bridge that gap and have so much to me. And yeah, that ending monologue does have a lot about how technology really separates us, even though it continues to uh, be about bringing us together and how stupid that is, how we have so much at our disposal and we're just waiting for the end times where eventually we will be able to accept the fact that we have everything and that we need to just chill out and allow everybody to have everything and share with our fellow man and be better people and that all makes it sound really great but it's actually just uh, but it's a it is just such a talk to the camera obvious scene at the end of a movie that you know doesn't it is like uh adam mckay do you like any adam mckay movies like big short or or, uh i like them until they become adam mckay movies when by the end they throw in the the credit sequence where it's like Wall Street made 1,000% of the money in the United States. Like I was laughing before when Mark Wahlberg was doing the ballet dance and he said, this is what we used to do to kids in the neighborhood to show them how gay they were. Like I'm laughing at that. I think that this is a very clearly a very big influence on Adam McKay. He always says that he's trying to recreate Dr. Strangelove or how to learn to stop worrying and love the bomb, which is obviously such a cool satire and that is so well done because it actually has things to say and invokes a lot of ideas that aren't just what if this situation was silly i think that he also clearly was influenced by this movie because i think that it is a lot of what if this person was silly it also made me want steve carell as hitler i think he would do a great job uh, which is a weird opinion but it's totally true i think he would do no i can see it and then jim halpert is Whatever that fucking guy's name is, he's the um, he's a Jewish guy. Oh, he's a Jewish. No, guy. he's a Jewish guy. And when Hitler's like, "Oh, we need to kill all these guys," <laughs> the Jim is like looking at the camera, doing a, doing the face, like. I want John Krasinski to play like some loser who goes back to the past and has to, and every time Hitler says something, he goes like, "Ooh, okay, yikes, that's gonna be a no for me, dog." <laughs> Um, someone reaches for the button to hit the button to press go on the gas chamber, but it's covered in jello. <laughs> Curse you, Office Jim. That's all right. So we got to pitch this to Netflix. It's Office Jim Time Traveler. I think that about wraps it up. Yeah, I think that's basically all I have to say about The Great, great Dictator. It feels like a hollow satire. It is just very much bringing to light. You know, for its time and place, obviously, it's bringing to light a lot of stuff that's going on on the other side of the world and trying to do it while entertaining. But it kind of fails on, on both fronts with some highlighted scenes, obviously. His first monologue funny. and the, the coin scene is pretty funny. I like it. And uh, there's a lot of weird stuff with the with deck chairs, which, by the way, is really funny because um, the the the, de- the there's literally someone in the uh, A Night to Remember who is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. He's doing it to survive, but it's also very funny. And in this uh, movie, they also have a lot of stuff with those sort of like fold out chairs where like uh, Hinkler or the Jewish uh, man pretending to be Hinkler. Hinkle, sorry, I got it right this time. Hinkle are, are just, you know, trying to sit down in the chair and then they fall or whatever, which is very funny. But it's really all I have to say. It's a it's a simple movie. I think we need to set aside a lot of time to talk about one of my personal favorite movies, and it's a Sean pick, so you know it's one of his personal favorite movies. Uncut Gems is my pick this week. By a pretty safe margin, the most contemporary movie um, that they have in the collection right now. They they just added Triangle of Sadness. I'm you're just this is definitely the most contemporary movie that we have covered so far in this whole collection. By far, yeah. Do, the first 2019, that... and that'll keep that title for a while. I hope. 
Unless the you first want to cover like that Petit could, Maman or something. That I believe we could theoretically have seen in theaters. And I think which we both did, right? I did not actually. So Ooh. I actually did not. I, I heard it was a hit. I, people liked it and everything. And I really wanted to see it in theaters. And then when it got left theaters, I was like, oh, I'll get around to it eventually. And I, I sent you a gif uh, this this week of hit, of that part where Adam Sandler says, like, I disagree. I disagree, Gary. Someone sent me that gif and that was what convinced me that I needed to see the movie was because I saw the like weird performance that Adam like I had not seen I had not seen anything except the poster and uh that like Adam Sandler was in it and I knew that it was the Safties were these up and coming guys and so that that seeing the like weird visual style and like his his look in motion I was like I got to see this and so I was able to see it later I immediately bought the is. Criterion when it came out I got it on 4K and everything and uh, yeah, that was a day that was uh, right after the flash sale happened, the, right after it was released, the flash sale happened and that was immediate purchase for me. Yeah, it was by the Safties. I had seen Good Time before, which I think would be fair to say is their their breakout hit. Uh-huh. I mean, their, their house style very much is frenetic, criminal, underworld, uh, very heavily lit, glitzy in a sense, glitzy, but also kind of grimy. I think is is kind of the balance that they strike. And Uncut Gems is, what if you were a Jewish guy and you were in hell? Like, what if the world was hell for you constantly? It's very similar to The Great Dictator in that way. Yeah, yeah. It covers our, but it's just, you were a Jewish guy. Just this one guy who is mm-hmm. like this black hole singularity of attracting just every force of causality towards him, good and evil. And the name of this black hole is Howard Ratner, uh, played by Adam Sandler in probably the greatest performance he's ever given. It's an incredible performance. It's a toss-up. I have we'll we'll get to Punch Drunk Love, which is also It's way better than Punch Drunk Love. I'm sorry. It knocks Punch Drunk Love out of the water. I, I'll have to see it again, but I really liked the Punch Drunk Love performance. We'll have to it's, it's uh, I'll have right. to see it again. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I have to like do my due diligence and yeah. rewatch it. I think that that's a weaker PTA anyway, but we'll, you know. Um, I don't like PTA. He... I think that's his best movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, except Phantom Thread. Duh, Phantom Thread. Okay, Phantom Thread, and then that, and then basically the rest all go farther down. That is an insane PTA. That is my take. Me. We have to, we have to, we'll talk PTA as soon as we get to, I guess, Punch Drunk Love, because that's the only film of his that's in the collection, if I'm not mistaken. So weird. But we've got Howard Ratner, who... Mm-hmm. He's a jewelry store owner in, uh, there's like a name for it. It's like Diamond Alley or something. It's like the, right. the the jewel district in New York. He's kind of doing decently well for himself. He's got a nice car. He's got a nice house and everything. But he is just an insane compulsive gambler who just, he needs every single thing on his life rides on the next big hit. And he is just, he is chaos incarnate. The movie mm-hmm. follows a complicated series of events that essentially involve a a diamond that he has imported from Ethiopia, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. um, from a set of African Jews who are working for a Chinese mining company. And he he gets his hands on it. And that kind of exploitation is is, is, part of that there because there's a lot going on. But he, he shows it to NBA superstar Kevin Garnett, who's one of my guys, one of my personal guys who plays himself, Mm. 
who becomes fascinated with this gem. And Howard is trying to wring as much money as he possibly can from Garnett to pay off a series of debts to a number of people. That's the big score that everything is riding on. And, you know, there's all these moving parts, all these different people he owes money to that are all trying to get him. He is like, it's kind of like a wave shooter. You know, it's like horde mode in Gears of War where he has a lot mm-hmm. of different like enemies just converging on him his, his position. The two freaky little twins who are bald, those are like level one enemies. Those are like the grunts in Halo who you can take out in one hit. Like they're not that's really so funny. A yeah, you're right. That's true. But then Arno, Arno and his guys, like those are the Sangili. He's the arbiter. They're coming in. You, you know, you gotta, you gotta do a little bit more work to get rid of them. Sean, this is my favorite. Ooh, this is a tough choice. This is a tough choice. I think this is. Uh, oh, okay, okay. My dinner with Andre, obviously, but this is my favorite movie other than my dinner with Andre that's in the collection that that that, that we've covered so far. I mean, Red Shoes. I like Red Shoes a lot. That's a, that's tough. I think Red no. Shoes is a better movie. I think Red Shoes is a better movie by far. But I, if talking about just personal preference, I would watch this movie like all the time because. Every time I watch it, I see something new. There's so much. There's so many little things. Right. Th- those bald guys, they don't really come up. I, I mean, they just they come sort up exactly of sh- twice. Yes. And they're rarely like any part. Whereas the first time I watched, it, I was like, oh, this is clearly part of the f- weaving the fabric. And I would understand it. And now that I'm rewatching it, like for the third time, I'm like, this is a plot point that really doesn't affect the movie. <laughs> no, it's it's just contributing to that chaos and the this movie is is really a litmus test you either love it or you hate it and the people who hate it a lot of the time their criticism is just like i don't know what the fuck is going on everybody is just cross talking it's like incomprehensible and that's by design and if you're if you're sold you're sold and you and you you know you can follow it and on rewatches it all falls into place but that is really the the barrier that you need to overcome in order to enjoy i might cut this out so I'm going to say this knowing that I might cut this out. Okay. Uh-huh. uh-huh. If if someone is listening to this right now and they're hearing you say this, they're they are gearing, they are white knuckling. Uh, my girlfriend uh went to a mental hospital at one point. Every week they or every whatever, Friday or something, they would have a movie night. And so one her experience in seeing this movie was watching it in a room full of people struggling with chronic depression and anxiety. Because they were like, oh, great, Adam Sandler, this is going to be funny. And so they all put it on. And so she hates this movie. She thinks this movie like is so exactly what you said. It is so confusing. It's it's anxiety inducing, but it's I like don't know nightmare. why. It, you're right. Exactly. Like, why am I watching this movie? I was hoping to get some more funny Adam Sandler, Hubie Halloween type you know vibes from it and it is kind of a funny movie is the thing it is it's so it's super funny but also the it's not Furby. yes or or just i mean just everything Katie, about Katie, his check performance. This out. you're gonna love this you're gonna love this that's a terrible important impression i mean no, just everything like about him. him is perfect though because it perfectly set up for, for sort of the combination of humor and whatever but uh I can totally understand why people don't like this movie on the like, I just don't understand what's going on. But it's also because of the dialogue. The dialogue is mixed to feel like you're in the room with them. It's not very loud. It's not very quiet. 
necessarily. Some things that are loud, some things that are important for the movie are said very quietly or while someone else is saying something at the same time. There's this overlapping uh, Scorsese-like dialogue that just sort of yells at each other and la- yells over each other. What, what, what do you want from me? Ah, come on. And they kind of repeat themselves over and over. It feels very improvisational. You're like, hey, hey, Louie, you got the cannolis coming in yet? Oh, no. How's the right, family? And then, How's your uncle? Right. And for the next 30 seconds, all you're going to hear is about how the cannolis are on their way. Like, over and over and over again. That's all yeah, they're going to explain. No new into, information. Into like right? a shouting match with right. someone's mistress. Exactly. Where And I think that's so true to life. I think that's perfect. I think it's beautiful. But it's also, you know, it means that you lose the plot points sometimes. Like like I did with the bald guys where I was like, I don't understand how they relate to everything. Or like uh, my girlfriend did with the whole movie. Yeah, it's everything is like a little bit of a piece of the puzzle. What, what really helps um, on a rewatch is getting everybody's kind of motivation straight. And that's, mm-hmm. I, I, that's such a, such an important part of it thematically as well. You go, okay, Howie, he needs to get the big score, right? He wants right. to put everything. He doesn't want to put everything in order. He wants to be at the center of chaos where he wins. He, he wants yes. to constantly be hitting on these like adrenaline fueled victories. Kevin Garnett has this, like mystical connection to this stone, which inter like he has this parallel motivation to Howard. They have this scene where they sit down and and Howard compares, you know, Kevin Garnett's killer instinct and his drive to to win, to you know, be the best, to be the best baller, to ball out. And he says, "This is me. This making money, making big scores, gambling with my life, putting everything on the line. This is how I win." It's true. He's like an athlete in this movie. I mean, he's a pretty crappy one, but he is. Well, I don't know, because he has been doing this for this long, right? Mm. And this is definitely the confluence of everything. But you just know that every day in his life kind of leading up to this was like this. And we're seeing a snapshot. We're seeing, you know, spoilers, the last moments of that. But ultimately, it's I, I think that he is kind of, in a sense, as good at this as you can be. It's just that the end of the road is always... Death no, no, and no, 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 because he could get out scot-free. There is the moments where he's standing there. You're right. He talks to Kevin Garnett. He has all the money that he needs. He's going to pay off his debts. He's going to be able to go back to he, he talks to his wife and all though It doesn't look like his wife is going to like give get uh, take him back. It does look like his wife at least is sort of amiable to him. He has this uh, lovely girlfriend that he's going to be with forever who he's just patched things up with. He has all the money. Everything works out. There is a scene where he's being comforted by his girlfriend for getting beat up by by the people who he owes money to. Maybe the funniest scene in the movie. And also like the sweetest. It is both. It is both. It's so weird. Oh man. And I got to talk about the girlfriend so, so much um, because she, I think adds so much uh, to, she's so weird. They have, but that scene where he's about to get out of it. So this movie is like, this movie's like two and a half hour, uh, half hours long. It's really long. It feels like. It's approximately the length of one always see everything. Exactly. And, and it is anxiety, just like I'd always see everything. It is anxiety inducing. It is funny sometimes, but always in an awkward way. And Adam Sandler is there. It's a, it's mostly about one insane freak. Um, who's just like an adrenaline junkie who's like constantly putting everything on the line and alienating and ruining his family. You decide which one of that is. And so everything about the black opal, everything about uh, that he, that he acquires, everything about Kevin Garnett, everything about all this, he finally 
can win. He finally has all the money he needs and he'll escape with uh, with his life and with no big profit. But he will be able to to sort of uh, get out of this situation, the main conflict of the movie. And that is when he talks to Kevin Garnett. And that is when he tells uh, him like, hey, I, I, you know, you and me, we're not so different. And I you know what? We're going to bet on you. I'm going to take all the money that I actually made and I'm going to place it all on you, which is just the stupidest thing that could happen in that moment is that you put yourself in more debt and more possibility of losing. And the fact that he wins doesn't mean crap. He knows he's going to hit. He does. And he wins at the end. He wins. He does. But you know, he, he really does win. And we can talk about that when we get to the ending. Let's let's talk a little bit more about our cast of characters. Let's spread our legs a little bit. So the most important character besides Howard, I think is fair to say, is his mistress, Julia. It's Julia Fox. And this was kind of like her mm-hmm. her breakout thing. I think it's fair to say. I think she is like she had like small time acting and modeling and whatever. But now she, you know, she's not necessarily a household name, but she's getting out there, which good for her. She's incredible in this movie. Um, I, I think that. The thing is just like she was just like one of the Safdie's friends. They just knew her a little bit and they were like, well, she rocks. So we got to get her in a movie. And she kind of plays a version of herself. She rides this line that's really weird because when you're first introduced to her, she is wearing underwear on his on Howard's bed. Uh, just she didn't come into work fighting with him about whatever she didn't come into work right she's seems like she's lazy and then she and then when he brings it up she's like why do do you want to fight or do you want to cuddle me i mean come on and you feel like oh this is being emotionally manipulative to quote you know one of my favorite political minds of the the 21st century i'm not saying she a gold digger oh no (laughs) no and i don't think i'm gonna say the thing that comes after (laughs) that It feels like very much like, okay, why is this woman who is very attractive with this guy who is Adam Sandler? And that happens in every movie. I mean, every movie basically after like, I don't know, 51st Dates era, Adam Sandler, you basically wonder why is Jennifer Aniston in this movie? She let him hit because he's goofy. Or whoever else. Right, exactly. And that keeps on happening or whatever. So you're whatever. But she honestly loves him in this movie. So when you're first introduced to him, I, I get a completely different impression of him, of, of her there than every subsequent scene in which she's doing everything for him. Not because she is uh, looking for gold or or because she even, I don't know, or, or, or even because she's some sort of shallow thing. She's very smart. She's very witty. She can, in her own way, uh, handle herself. And she... It's not like she's desperate in any way. She honestly just likes or loves Howard and it doesn't make any sense in, in the typical way, but it, it is her, her relationship with him and, and always betting on him and always trusting him in comforting him when he's losing and, and helping him win constantly eventually all the way up to that last bet is the core of the film is is the only thing that keeps the thing going and honestly howard is the bad one in the relationship like spilling her smoothie throwing fits all the time but she clearly loves him so much and he just flies off the handle yells at her while she's trying to more or less 
have an adult conversation with him. It, it would be so easy to make these movies about like these scummy kind of people and just have a nothing love interest who is either just angelic or or, or a femme fatale. Oh. Yeah, kind of like a, a parable about like, you know, oh, be careful about, women. about messing with women because, you know, <laughs> right. you know what they're like. And it's like it doesn't take an easy way out, really. I mean, she wins at the end. She's the mo- biggest winner because at least she's not dead like Adam Sandler. She gets the money. She uses her... I, honestly, I think that that scene earlier where she manipulates Howard into just ending the fight or whatever is important because at the end you need her to be able to use her sexuality to escape the, you know, she's the one who places the bet that eventually gets money from Kevin Gar uh, because Kevin Garnett is playing so well. Um, but she has to evade uh, these these mob guys who who are trying to get to her, and so she is able to go into some random old guys who basically she, walked she out of a stinking Wayne Ocean's Diamond. Eleven movie. He looks like a goblin from the Rankin and Bass, like yes. Lord of the Rings. Wow, but I love it just, that reference. But just completely dripped out. He's he's a Grand Theft Auto NPC. Let's be real. He's a guy that you do a mission for in a DLC who's like who has like a beloved quest where he gives you like the best gun in the game. But he's he embodies the weird sort of like the the guys that will be acting asking out someone who is played by by Julia Fox, who yeah. someone who is that attractive. And she is able to use him, you know, a little bit manipulatively, but also, you know, he's being a little bit of a creep. Um, he's able to use him. I mean, to, he to loves stay it, safe. though. He loves it, though. Right. And actually, they both cares. benefit from it. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't it's not like he at, he doesn't ask her to sleep with him. He just wants to you know, have a female friend, if that makes any sense. And he, she takes advantage of that and uses him. And I think that that earlier scene where she manipulates Howard is important to set that sort of up in her character. Otherwise she would just be, otherwise you would just assume that because, Oh, she's attractive. And at one point in the movie, she wears lingerie, like, you know, and that would be a little too, that would almost be misogynistic if they were not able to establish that in her character beforehand. I think I'm going to get the, the Howard ass tattoo. Because it's so good. It's really funny. It's a little funny. He shows it. He just goes, oh, no. Why'd you, why'd you do that? Right. He's so. He's so distraught. He's so distraught. And you get the idea that she, he actually does care that she got did that because he's then concerned about the commitment to her. That's the moment where he realizes like, oh, she's just so too good for me. Yeah. And so why do you do that? Isn't saying like. It is yeah, saying like, why she's for perfect. Me? Why? Yeah. Why are you with me? It, that's what's so good about the dialogue in this movie. It feels so natural. It feels so improvisational. It feels like they're coming up with it off the top of their head. They're very good at writing in different characters' voices. Yes, like that Julia too. Yes. talks as she does. KG talks as he would. It's without it's it being very gimmicky. Good. Without it being like uh, no, I don't it, know. it feels very naturalistic. Right. Without it, it, it does feel naturalistic, and it's so, and yet. Uh, it, there's such thematic depth to a lot of the things that they're saying, the way they say it, the acting. You're right. Adam Sandler gives a performance of a lifetime. Truly. I'm I'm only I like I said, I'm only holding off because I really want to rewatch Punch Drunk Love because my one right. big note was circle, circle, Adam Sandler performance. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I think this is because the, the dialogue has to be so uh, pedestrian in its way. It has to be so just. What the normal way people talk the the way that we you know we and this podcast have a lot of ways of talking that i say you know and i say um yeah so and then whatever and they keep all of that in 
the movie and they keep that as part of people's characters. I, usually you'd cut that out. I mean, I even cut some of that out in this podcast. Because of that, I think that using it for your performance, being able to invoke meaning through your performance is especially important here in this movie. And I think Adam Sandler knocks it out of the park. I think Kevin Garnett does pretty well. I think that he does uh, well. Julia Fox does really well, too. The only yeah. one who I, 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 I'm ramping up, the only one who, the only performance I, I get a little, that I don't think is on the same level is uh, the, the wife, Dinah. The, the wickedly talented Adele Dazeem. She seems like she is in a more contemporary, uh, more uh, typical version of this movie. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I think she just, she really sells how genuinely pissed off she is. It's not a very, there aren't a lot of dimensions, I don't think, to the performance. Um, that, sure, that right. Is, but it, it's not altogether necessary. Like, she just, she hates his ass. Yeah. so much and then the scene you know the the scene where they're together with the family at um at passover and she's just like kind of coming around to him but she also still just hates him it's mm-hmm. that's that's very nicely done i think she's yeah, um true. you know that's a good scene i think that's a well-written scene though i think it's just she seems yeah. so she doesn't get that sort of improvisational feeling to her i guess it, she just her her, her performance feels stiff. very metered yes very very stiff very specific and she only has to play one thing but she does so without the sort of like filler words i sometimes don't know what i'm gonna say next she, yeah she, she still seems like she's scripted which is fine it's just it's she does stand out a little bit. I just yeah. wanted to bring that up. Uh, sorry, Sean. This is your movie, though. Let's let's move on to, to some other characters you want to talk about. So I want to I want to briefly speed run through a few of them. I think the most important one we haven't talked about yet is Kevin Garnett himself. Uh-huh, of um, course. Really, the one thing I want to I want to focus on is his connection to this gem, this this black mm-hmm. opal. Um, Howard is is showing him around. So there's this guy Damani who's um, kind of Howard's connection who whose job is to go to parties, meet celebrities, and take them back to to Howard. And Damani himself uh, played very, very well by Lakeith Stanfield. One of my favorite actors right now. One of the guys oh, who every time I every time I see him in this in a supporting role, basically any time I've seen him other than I'm sorry to bother you, mm-hmm. I basically say, why is he in this movie? He should be doing something way better because he's just so good in every single role. He's he's a great leading man and sorry to bother you. He's also like mm-hmm. such a very he's a great supporting actor. He's a great character actor. I mean, mm-hmm. he is. Yeah, yeah, obviously yeah, you got get he out. He hits so hard. Oh yeah. It's just he, uh, whenever so he plays a supporting character, I'm like this guy, and I'm not even saying like intent in like conventional like leading man roles. That's what I want to see him. I, I don't want to see him as like you just want to see more of him. Exactly. I just want to see more of him. I just want to see more. I, it's not that he, I want him to be a conventional leading man role like leading iron man 17 or something like that mm-hmm. it's just that when he's used he's almost always used in these supporting roles that he nails and it has so much range to and and beauty in and uh i i wish that more people would would just give him a chance but uh that's neither here nor there he's fabulous in this movie he yeah he's kind of this scummy guy kind of who deals like fake rolexes and whatever he, he's one of howard's many business partners um who are losing patience with him but he brings kevin garnett i lose patience with him though he he also is being a jerk too because he's the one who's not bringing him the opal who's like no yeah I'm, i let kevin ca- well, it's, keep it you know it's a chaotic scenario right he's not a good guy he's, he's kind of scummy in his own way but 
So he he brings in KG and how he's showing him around. He's showing him all these things. He's showing him the the funny bedazzled Furby, which is part of the Criterion cover. Yes, he he shows him this black opal um, that he got. How he, he makes a note that like it's it's from African Jews. They they got Jews in Africa. Look at this. It's like it's a very specific thing. Um, and I I want to talk about that too because it's so New York. I think that there's a weird version, the, a weird thing that this movie has, which is that New York uh, is a character, but New York has such a, a presence of being the center of our African American and Jewish culture, specific yes, uh, yes. aspects of it's, it. It's like these these spiritual. So Kevin Garnett becomes fascinated by this opal. He looks into it and he like it zooms in and he's like seeing all the, the caves and lattices and he sees the flashbacks of, it seems like interstitial uh, little portraits of his own life and also mm-hmm. weaving in with, you know, these African Jews and all. It seems like he realizes like the universe filtered through his own perspective. I can watch then, that for you know, hours. He, he, every time, every time I see this movie and they do that, the, the opening shot of this movie, I mean, well, not opening shot. After you see the Ethiopian miners find the opal, you zoom into the opal and you come and you, zoom through sort of yeah right you go it's you zoom into the opal and it's almost a 2001 type like vague unspecific sequence where you're seeing like the inside of the opal that slowly transitions into the inside of of his colonoscopy and i think there's so much meaning there i think part of it is it's literally at the end zooming into the bullet hole in his head right and doing it it, again the same thing and they do it again during this this Kevin Garnett sequence, where Kevin Garnett sees his his himself and in, in, in within it. Every time I watch the movie, I basically say, "I wish that there was like thirty more minutes of that. <laughs> I could do that forever." It's showing this idea that Kevin Garnett has like the spiritual connection to this opal, and Howard is kind of cagey about like, "No, no, I'm not going to sell it to you," which is funny because like he clearly wanted to sell it to him, but he's like, "No, no, it's not for sale." But and you know the and this. Kevin Garnett holding on to it becomes like the the catalyst for the whole movie. But I think that that's what I found like so interesting about it. And what really brought it to mind for me is in the last scene where they finally make the trade off, um, KG buys the jewel and then Howard, you know, bets it all the, the catalyst for the, the last act. Kevin Garnett has this confrontation with him where it's like, Hey, I don't, how much did you pay for this gem? Like you, you're exploiting these miners, you know, to just to make all this money. He kind of, he calls him out. You know, he's, he's like laying bare, like I'm losing patience with you, but you know, but I I love this gem and he's, it's this, that's where I see like these, these disparate threads being weaved together. Cause it's, yeah, it's a very good observation. Like you said, because it's such a New York story and because of that, it can use the pieces of the, the intersection of African-American and Jewish. Um, because like, and Judaism is a really, really big part of this movie. Um, it gets mentioned constantly it's you know they have a passover celebration it's and you know somebody makes a commentary about like hey you know the the first points in the nba were scored by a jew it's like it's this idea of it being interwoven and it's all filtered through like the jewel is is kind of this crucible where it's the exploited african jews who are kind of the these two dna threads being woven together um that passing the jewel it gets kind of as light you know, think of like light being shown into a prism and then refracting into different pieces. It's like the African Jews shine the light through the gem and then it splinters off into 
Kevin Garnett representing, you know, the, the black aspect, the African ancestry, and then Howard, you know, the Jewish ass. And it's right. We're not so different. You and me. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's like the, the jewel is kind of the, like the locus of the collective unconscious. You know, it's like mm. the womb, the, the cradle of civilization in a sense. And it's like unif- the uniting of all these human desires of greed and ambition and like all is wrapped up on, on, in this gem. And I think this that- This is where the edible hit for you on this one, right? No, okay. yeah. I'm kidding. No, no that's no, totally literally. true. Oh my uh, gosh. No, no, literally. And then I don't want to talk too much about things that I don't know too much about. Um, this year for me is reading books- uh, like, cause I'm, I'm trying to read books now. Right. Oh, good job. I'm trying now. I'm trying to like fill out some backfill, some of the classics that Maybe I probably should have read. Drool, but okay. <laughs> no, they're both good. Yeah. I, I'm just messing around. I'm a Renaissance man. So I, uh, I was joking. Uh, so this year backfilling the stuff that I probably should have already read as an English major next year is the one where I'm reading all the mysticism and occult texts. Mm. So next year I'll be able to redo this episode and, you know, be, be really be able to speak on this, but you'll literally be able to redo it. You'll be able to go back in time and redo it with your easily, cult easily with powers. a snap of my fingers. This, this movie does feel very Gnostic in a sense mm. in that it's, it deals so much with the, like the religious understanding of the world as separate and mutually exclusive with our material world, with the conditions that exist um, in the material world. And right. the our world, you know, that we live in as kind of the creation of, of the demiurge, right? Like this outside evil force that has shaped for us kind of a kind of hell in a sense, but the world itself is hell because it's impossible Mm. to live a truly good, fully religiously fulfilled life. Like Howard seems, his story seems very much wrapped up in that because he's all these material pursuits and everything. And it seems like all of the seven deadly sins are manifested in these different people and these different aspects of his life that are, yeah, feel it feel like I, compared earlier to like a wave shooter, but like there these demons are constantly converging upon him and torturing him right. and tearing him apart. Lust with his mistress, pride right. with his, his constant need to win over and over again, like to yep. feel something to, to win, you know, the idea of like, Oh, this is how I win. I need to feel good. Like this is me. I need to constantly be fulfilling myself in this way. And, you know, greed obviously, but it's just, and everyone like Arnie and all of his guys, they're just like all these all these different demons who are torturing him. And sure. I think that And that's why we have this Seder the Seder scene, because it's so much about his connection. He uh, it is a religious ritual, you know, it it, it has uh, great significance for the Jewish people and, and Christians and to a lesser extent, uh, obviously. Uh, but it is about uh sort of the material plane reaching out into that ethereal spiritual realm and and trying to to make sense of it trying to say oh whatever and howard is uh literally under the table texting someone else you know like he he's still in the middle of doing his deals and he's trying to make jokes about it and everything and he's not taking it seriously it is like he can't reach out into when you're you're reading of the like sort of ethereal spiritual realm of this movie it's like howard can't quite fit in with that it's like he can't quite 
fix it. And no, when you're talking about he is. and their version, right? And this version of hell that you're talking about, the the Safdies have such a, a distinctive style, sure, and, and that it, people talk about this movie all the time, and they say it's anxiety inducing. Oh, mm. that this movie is a panic attack as a movie or whatever, um, which is a little over the top, but it is in, it makes you anxious because of their stylistic choices. They have this sort of neonish glow. It's set in 2012, which is obviously the peak of civilization. It's the best 2010s period piece. Truthfully, it, it, it rules. And it has, the, the lighting is all this artificial, I don't want to say neon. That's not quite the uh, fluorescent kind fluorescent, of white yeah. lighting that kind of blows out everything. And what makes it, they go to a club at one point. They, they're they always able to find some new way to, to use that uh, fluorescent kind of lighting it makes it so that everything is being highlighted at the same time howard's life is a panopticon because think about how he's constantly being illuminated constantly being watched everywhere he goes there's someone trying to get something from him always and it's like when you're in hell you always have a demon sitting on your back right behind you there's just you're never ever free and i it's amazing I, I think that that's but I think that's what makes the Safdie's style work so well for this movie is that he's being tortured and as an audience we are seeing everything everything like they they cut very quickly the the editing is so frenetic but all which is you know a very basic tool to be like ah everything's crazy aren't you scared and kind of worried for this character when everything's cutting back and forth but also the lighting the the shot composition is all about making sure that you try to pay attention uh, to everything all at once. I just such a clearly realized vision of of hell, I think, mm-hmm. is is what I got from it. There's also an aspect of transcendence of that and beauty, because in the mm-hmm. last scene, Howard hits, he gets the big gamble. He wins everything. He, you know, he's been holding Arnie and his thugs hostage. He hits the buzzer. He releases them. He goes, oh, you know, finally, we're all free. And the henchman just shoots him in the head. Completely yep. unapologetic, unceremonious. He's just dead. And there's this scene of... He dies he, with his boots on. He, he dies with a smile on his face because he... Yeah, not, not just that. And there's this moment of chaos as, you know, Arnie is shot as well. There's just these other guys who are scrambling to steal these gems. They are still trapped in the moral coil and in the feedback loop of pain and misery because, you know, ultimately it's it's a hell where the jailers are also being tortured. But as we see that, we see Howard dead with a smile on his face. It zooms into the bullet hole and we return to the collective unconscious, the, the same like dappled landscape of within the gem because he's he's returning to that, this kind of, space of transcendence where that we all Mm -hmm. came from um and that we all return to after we die and the material world is just this this brief nightmare and he in this moment of pure ecstasy he gets to transcend it and in a sense it's it's hard to even read it as a moral fable because he got what he wanted and ultimately you can't can you even say that he lost? Can you even say that it's a bad thing for because him to die? Because he's happy. He dies happy. Like He's happy the, and he's free. Finally. The idea is that there, when you zoom in onto his face, you're zooming into his brain or, or whatever. You're zooming into his, his mind, his soul or whatever. He is eternally that moment of winning. And isn't that what really winning is in that in that way isn't that like the biggest w ever (laughs) it's it's the death drive we always talk about the death drive but yeah maybe samurai 
he's trying to square it so that the moment of death and the moment of ecstasy align perfectly. And that's anything that ends like this, where weaving together that ultimate moment of ecstasy and, and leaving you with that feeling. It just, that's part of why this movie is so addictive. Why it's so rewatchable is because mm-hmm. it leaves you with that high and you just, you want another hit. Uncut Gems, incredible, incredible movie. This Bang is going to be week, so difficult to to rank for me. I actually think well, this, like I said, I think this is a weaker week, it. but I want you to rank them first, Sean, because I, I have, I keep on debating about Uncut Gems, where it places, and I, I want you to start us off with, with what you think. I'll go bottom to top this week. Great Dictator coming in for me, lowest of the ones so far, at number 13, in between mm. Grand Illusion at 12 and Le Samurai at 14. Interesting. I, it's, yeah, Coming up above Le Samurai is, I really think, I, I gotta watch Le Samurai again. I don't think I'm giving it quite enough credit, but I liked The Dick Great Dictator. I thought it was charming. I thought there were good jokes. A lot more than I thought I would, honestly. It's really not my kind of scene, but, you know, surprised myself a little bit. We will eventually have to get to some of his better, what I consider his better, Charlie. Uh, I've seen City Lights, and I didn't, I liked it about as much, maybe even a little really? bit less, so we'll, we'll see. Crazy. Number 11, so a couple above, A Night to Remember, um, mm. just under Hoop Dreams, above Grand Illusion. We fast forward quite a bit in between Godzilla at five and The Killer at three is Uncut Gems. Wow. It's, Whoa. I, because here's Whoa. the thing, too low or too high? What too, do you think? Uh, super high, uh, especially because you just revealed The Killer too. I did. Yeah, I didn't really realize that. Yeah, of course. So you got three and four for Uncut Gems and, or sorry, three for The Killer, four for Uncut Gems? Yeah, I'm debating, I'm debating switching it in Godzilla. It's kind of a toss up for me. The thing is that Uncut Gems, I want to rewatch over and over again. The Godzilla is kind of a once in a while thing. I really think that Godzilla has more thematic depth for me and gave mm. me a little bit more, which I... I that's that's a lot to say because uncut gems i have a lot to say about it too but uncut gems it's just it's so easy and so fun to watch it's uh-huh. i think it's got to take the edge there and then the killer is just like perfect insane 10 out of 10 like one of the best action movies i've ever seen wow. purity clarity i did not expect you to put it higher than uncut gems too that that, that also freaks me out i know i know but it's it really is just that good and i you've heard me talk a lot about uncut gems you're going to hear me referencing the killer just as much if not more it's it's a new entry in the canon in the sean canon but it's a worthy one and that's coming in just behind the red shoes and of course we're putting all john woo's criterion films on the list in the next couple of weeks so stay tuned for all that as we as we dive into the hard-boiled and the and Other the mystery last one, one. That keep forgetting. Last hurrah for last chivalry. Last hurrah for chivalry. Go. Right. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. You helped me decide because I, I, and I don't want to be reactionary at all. So I'm not trying to do that. Well, this is a reactionary podcast. Coming in at number 15. So we're, we have 16 movies on this list. Coming in at number 15, right above The Lady Vanishes for me is The Great Dictator. I like it. I don't think it's a bad movie. I don't, I just think it's fine. I think it's okay. I, I don't have anything else to say about it really it, it just is fine um it comes in right after uh right under grand illusion right above lady vanishes uh coming in at number 11 also exactly where you placed it is a night to remember and i found it really funny i put it right under godzilla which i know you have way higher but i i think that putting those right next to each other is funny 
in some it, ways. Very similar. I just like Godzilla just a little better. I think that uh, Godzilla will end up standing a little bit of the test of time a little more. And it's uh, above Amarcord, which I also liked less than you did. The Killer, I just put barely above Le Samurai. I, I liked it a lot. I put it at number seven. So it's above Lace. It actually splits. It's super funny. Again, Godzilla and Night to Remember, both these disaster movies. I basically have the three movies about killer guys who are super cool. All three right there. Number six is Ghost Dog. Number seven is The Killer. Number eight is Le Samurai. I think it's right above Le Samurai for me. I don't think it's as good as Ghost Dog. I think Ghost Dog has a little bit more to say that uh, really resonates with me. And I think the filmmaking craft is just a little better. The Killer, uh, though, is a great introduction to John Woo. And I'm excited to, like you, I'm excited to make it part of uh, my personality and rewatch it several times over and over again which I probably won't do very much with A Night to Remember or The Great Dictator. You've seen them, you've crossed them off your list. Right. And so this, I tossed it up. I kept on moving stuff around. Uh, Uncut Gems, the big problem for me is I love this movie so much. I've rewatched this movie. I This is just one of the movies that I like watching. And so I was trying to make sure that I tried to be, you know, you know me, I'm so objective. I ha- know everything. They call you the scientist. You're a numbers guy. And so I finally settled at Uncut Gems at number five, above Ghost Dog, below Hoop Dreams. I still I still contend that Hoop Dreams is a a marvelous piece of art that just gets above it. We maybe we'll reevaluate in some years, but uh, for now, this is the ranking. Uh, so it comes in at number five. I think it will. The Red Shoes and Seven Samurai are going to be are staying are sticking at one and two for me for a long time. I don't understand how I could pull it down but i think uncut gems will still stick around in the top 10 for at least i don't know a few more weeks depending on how many of our picks uh we got some bangers coming up though yeah oh my goodness we got some young guns young and hungry you want take us home take us into next week so next week we got a follow-up on our john woo trilogy Hard Boiled, which I've seen before. Anthony, I don't believe you have. I have not. I watched the first five minutes and then had to leave my house. <laughs> you are not going to be able to look at hospitals the same way again, is what oh, I will say. That's a tease. Then we have Walkabout, which is an Australian or New Zealand film. Australian, I'm, I'm almost positive. From what I've seen, a little bit like a coming of age kind of thing, but the, the cover goes hard. I love I'm a sucker for anything that takes place in the Outback. So I'm very excited for that. And mm-hmm. then for our picks, um, we were having a little bit of trouble here. We were looking down our list, seeing what, what was our synergy. So I just, I saw the word walkabout and I was like, well, I do have a movie called Walker. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is Alex Cox of Repo Man's fame, Repo Man fames, um, one of his movies. A couple things I'll say about it before we go in. It is one of the angriest movies I've ever seen. One of the most venomous and passionate and in a sense hateful movies, but incredibly well-directed and well-deserved its objects are. Um, And it was a complete disaster, completely flopped, which is also probably a good thing based on its content. It is one of my top four movies of all time. This is the first one that we're coming on that I coming into it. I know that this is one of my guys. So that's what I will say. Sean, we've talked about this. I have seen more movies in the Criterion Collection than you have. I own a bunch of them, oh, okay. but I oh, keep wow. on trying to. I'm not Thanks. trying uh, humble brag. For trying me. to no, big dog to... me. I'm already the alpha dog. I'm already the alpha dog. So it's fine. What I'm trying to say is that 
I try i'm trying to keep off my picks i had i threw in my dinner with andre and red shoes right at the beginning and i feel like i i quickly threw in a couple of my favorite movies and uncut gems is obviously also there even though that was a your pick so i'm trying to choose more stuff that that is thematically resonant and is stuff that i want to see that i haven't seen yet and so i'm going with tokyo drifter uh, a movie that i have heard amazing things about that also kind of belongs to the the Lay Samurai, The Killer, Ghost Dog, Drive, Driver, Baby Driver, uh, mishmash of people being very good at their one thing that they do in a life of crime that's probably lit by neon and is super cool. Very Japan heavy we are in the beginning portion of this podcast, but the Criterion Collection is Japan heavy. What are you going to do? They know what they're doing over there. Right. I mean, it's either that or go go French, and I know that you're you're kind of against that. We got to get to it eventually. We will. We will. That's the whole thing. We will always see everything. Listen, Beauty and the Beast went hard, but the French are still on thin fucking ice with me. And uh, thank you guys all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to check out anthonyreviews.com where you can find other reviews and more updates. Uh, check us out on all our social media. Links in the description. And as always, we are going to end by naming the episode because it's the first episode in a miniseries. We have to integrate John Woo's name, so that will be part of it. But Sean, you had a proposition for us? So this is a little bit of but I want to do a Howard Ratner and do kind of a three-way parlay here. So we have we have movies, people die in all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Judaism, Jewishness, Jewish identity, big part of two of them. And of yep. course, we need the John Woo there. Um, sidebar here, what made me think of this is that at one time when we were playing D&D, um, Anthony noticed me listening to a, a song with a striking title that I won't say <laughs> on Spotify. Uh, by by the band Death in June, and that was on my mind. So what I propose is we have Death in June, spelled J E W W O O for John Woo, and then N E, so it's like June. I thought this movie was good. <laughs>